I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed and host of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. On We Can Do Hard Things, my wife, Abby, my sister, Amanda, and I talk honestly about the hard parts of life. Join us and guests like Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Brene Brown as we have refreshingly honest conversations. New episodes are out every Tuesday and Thursday. So listen to and follow We Can Do Hard Things, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and everywhere you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. He had been born into enslavement in Maryland before escaping north to freedom. And now on the 5th of July, 1852, at the beautiful Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York, Frederick Douglass rose with 30 pages of text to speak to his age and to the ages. I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is always cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. Nations do not stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago. Wall cities and empires have become unfashionable. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe. Oceans no longer divide but link nations together. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far off and almost fabulous Pacific rolls in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages is being solved. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Episode 8, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. It was a grim hour for black Americans. Two years before, the Compromise of 1850 had brought California into the Union as a free state, but the price of admission was a strengthened fugitive slave law which deployed the power of the federal government to capture and to return those who, like Douglas, sought freedom. And the prospect of slavery extending into the Western territories by popular sovereignty, a reality that would theoretically come to pass in 1854, was a live possibility. Meanwhile, there was a ferocious debate among abolitionists over whether the Union was worth preserving whether the Constitution was fundamentally pro or anti-slavery. Into this moment stepped Frederick Douglass. The Frederick Douglass of July 1852 in Rochester, New York, was still a a young man. Uh, He'd been editor of his own newspaper now for five years. He uh, spent a lot of time out on the circuit as an itinerant abolitionist speaker. He's also had all but a nervous breakdown in the previous year or two because he could barely feed his family. He now has five children at home in Rochester. His only means of income are that newspaper and 
his work on the speaking circuit, which didn't pay very well. This is the professor of history at Yale University, David Blight, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Prophet of Freedom, a biography of Douglas. He had reached a degree of fame as an orator, but he was undergoing at that moment a profound personal and ideological transformation. He was breaking away from William Lloyd Garrison, his mentor in the abolition movement, especially on certain strategies such as how to use the Constitution against slavery, uh, whether violence was in any way a viable possibility for abolitionists. He's a radical abolitionist at this point. He's not inside any kind of power. He's an outsider. But he gets invited to deliver a Fourth of July address by his friends in Rochester, by the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Rochester. And when Douglas gets this invitation, he must have sat there and thought, what a moment I've been given here, and I'm going to make the best of it. Orator, editor, and abolitionist. He opened his oration at Rochester with words of humility. He who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has stronger nerves than I have. I do not remember ever to have appeared as a speaker before any assembly more shrinkingly, nor with greater distrust of my ability than I do this day. Should I seem at ease, my appearance would much misrepresent me. The little experience I have had in addressing public meetings in country schoolhouses avails me nothing on the present occasion. It was a familiar rhetorical device, lower expectations that one then aims to exceed. And Douglas exceeded them to a nearly unimaginable degree. There is a letter in which Douglas tells us that he worked as hard as anything he'd ever done, at least with oratory, on that 4th of July speech. He says he worked for three weeks on it. And of course it shows. What he delivered that day was from a script, which he carried to the lectern with him. And our man was also a marketer. He already had it printed up in a pamphlet form, <laughs> ready to take on the road uh, when it was over. He knew he had something special here. He knew he had a critique of America itself that he could take on the road. And indeed, what he delivered that day is the rhetorical masterpiece of the American abolition movement. For his words in Rochester would live on, even to our own day. That's because what he said was inescapably true that the United States of America had been founded on an ideal that had not been fully realized. It is Douglass's way of demanding that the country live up to its creeds. And I, I suspect that's why it has such power and resonance still today, because it takes America's creeds and it says, the creeds are fine, the principles are fine. It's always the practices that never quite measure up. And there are very few rhetorical performances that demonstrated that quite like Douglas's Fourth of July speech. As Abraham Lincoln once remarked, people don't like being told that there's a difference between the Almighty and themselves. Audiences may notionally believe that they are open to persuasion, but in fact, most of us are confident in our convictions. 
Most of us are more interested in hearing our views affirmed than in entertaining challenges to our patterns of thought. And most of us believe it's the other side that needs to reconsider the things they hold dear. Douglas understood this aspect of human nature, and therefore he grounded his appeal at Corinthian Hall in the things that he knew his audience already appreciated, the greatness of the American experiment. For paragraph after paragraph, minute after minute, Douglas composed a hymn of praise to the United States and to its founding intentions. This, for the purpose of this celebration, is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. This, to you, is what the Passover was to the emancipated people of God. It carries your minds back to the day and to the act of your great deliverance, and to the signs and to the wonders associated with that act and that day. The opening part is about, uh, oh, six pages or so, where he sets the audience at ease. He talks about the genius of your fathers. He calls the 4th of July the American Passover. He appeals to deeply biblical traditions as well as to this great secular tradition of the Declaration of Independence. He honors Thomas Jefferson. With brave men, there is always a remedy for oppression. Just here, the idea of a total separation of the colonies from the crown was born. Citizens, your fathers made good that resolution. They succeeded, and today you reap the fruits of their success. The freedom gained is yours, and you therefore may properly celebrate this anniversary. The 4th of July is the first great fact in your nation's history the very ring bolt in the chain of your undeveloped destiny. Pride and patriotism, not less than gratitude, prompt you to celebrate and to hold it in perpetual remembrance. I have said that the Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. So indeed I regard it. The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. And then came the pivot, the moment where a great speech does its most difficult work. So far, there had been nothing especially controversial about Douglas's words. They had, in fact, been an eloquent but fairly conventional evocation of American virtue. About six pages in comes the shift to the second movement of this oration, and it's as though the hammer comes down. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, 
Liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. It, of course, is an exploration and a revelation of American hypocrisy, but it takes his audience inside the depth of the complicity of even those who are sympathetic with his cause. And that was a very sympathetic audience he had that day, the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Rochester and their friends. You declare before the world and are understood by the world to declare that you hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, you hold securely in bondage, which according to your own Thomas Jefferson, is worse than ages of that which your fathers rose in rebellion to oppose, a seventh part of the inhabitants of your country to drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems where inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today? Douglas was now playing the role of a prophet, of a human agent speaking of the will of the divine in relation to human affairs. David Blight has written that the idea of prophecy is unsettling to the modern secular imagination, but the rhetorical, spiritual, and historical traditions on which Douglas drew so deeply envisioned the prophet as a messenger of God's warnings and wisdom. Hear him now. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful well of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs and To chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cami Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cami Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology, and Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. There were many sources of Douglas's rhetorical style. He spoke in the tradition of the Puritan sermons that summoned the sinful to repentance. He understood the art of preaching of the black church with its emphasis on endurance and on deliverance. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity which is outraged, in the name of liberty which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. And there was something musical about Douglas's rhetoric, recalling life on the Lloyd Plantation in eastern Maryland where he spent part of his youth. Douglas remembered that the enslaved would make the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sadness. The sounds from those forests haunted Douglas. He recalled, The mere recurrence to those songs even now afflicts me. And while I am writing these lines, an expression of feeling has already found its way down my cheek. To those songs I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. As Douglas plotted his escape, he and his compatriots, he recalled, sometimes let their hopes get the better of their judgment. Reflecting on the master from whom he broke away, Douglas wrote, I am the more inclined to think that he suspected us, because, prudent as we were, as I now look back, I can see that we did many silly things, very well calculated to awaken suspicion. Douglas continued, We were at times remarkably buoyant, singing hymns and making joyous exclamations, almost as triumphant in their tone as if we had reached a land of freedom and safety. A keen observer might have detected in our repeated singing of O Canaan, sweet Canaan, I am bound for the land of Canaan, something more than a hope of reaching heaven. We meant to reach the north, and the north was our Canaan. I thought I heard them say there were lions in the way, I don't expect to stay much longer here, run to Jesus, shun the danger, I don't expect to stay much longer here, was a favorite air, and had a double meaning. In the lips of some, it meant the expectation of a speedy summons to the world of spirits. But in the lips of our company, it simply meant a speedy pilgrimage toward a free state and deliverance from all the evils and dangers of slavery. 
The double meaning of which Douglas wrote is also called masking, the tradition in African-American music of apparently singing about one thing while in fact singing about another. To sing of deliverance from sin, for instance, was also to sing of deliverance from slavery and from discrimination without provoking a white backlash. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot is a classic example. The chariot isn't just about going to heaven beyond the skies, but to a freedom beyond the Mason-Dixon line. On Monday, August 10, 1864, Douglas, who was actively recruiting black men for the Union Army, called on the president at the White House to discuss these matters. After escaping from slavery in Maryland, Douglas was understandably wary of heading south from his base in Rochester. For 25 years, you know that when I got as far south as Philadelphia, I felt that I was rubbing against my prison wall and could not go any further, he recalled. But this time, on he went. Once in Washington, he and Senator Samuel C. Pomeroy of Kansas went to the White House, making their way through the usual crowds on the staircases and in the anterooms. Douglas was the only dark spot among the white faces, he recalled. I expected to have to wait at least half a day. I had heard of men waiting a week. But in two minutes after I sent in my card, the messenger came out and respectfully invited Mr. Douglas in. Lincoln was seated in a low armchair, paper strewn about the room. As usual, his legs were stretched out, his feet, Douglas later joked, in different parts of the room. The president rose to greet his guest. Douglas began to explain who he was, but Lincoln cut him off. Mr. Douglas, I know you, I have read about you, and Mr. Seward has told me about you, Lincoln said, extending a hand. I will tell you how he received me, just as you have seen one gentleman receive another, with a hand and a voice well balanced between a kind cordiality and a respectful reserve, Douglas later told the American Anti-Slavery Society. I tell you, I felt big there. Douglas did not flinch in the presence of power. I told him that he had been somewhat slow in proclaiming equal protection to our colored soldiers and prisoners. And he said that the country needed talking up to that point, Douglas recalled. He knew that the colored man throughout this country was a despised man, a hated man, and he knew that if he at first came out with such a proclamation, all the hatred which is poured on the head of the Negro race would be visited on his administration. After meeting with the president, Douglas was imbued with the belief that the true course to the black man's freedom and citizenship was over the battlefield. The Union of Lincoln was not perfect, but to Douglas, the Union of Lincoln was worth the war. In December 1863, Douglas said, we are fighting for something incomparably better than the old Union. We are fighting for unity, unity of idea, unity of sentiment, unity of object, unity of institutions, in which there shall be no North, no South, no East, no West, no Black, no White, but a solidarity of the nation, making every slave free and every free man a voter. The words were characteristically eloquent, but to Douglas, they were more than words. Listening to Lincoln, looking him in the eye, taking his measure, 
Frederick Douglass decided to trust the President of the United States. On this, Douglass was willing to stake the lives of his sons, who were in uniform, and the lives of his people. Out of the darkness of war, Douglass wagered, would come the light of liberty, however dim the light then seemed. At Rochester, Douglass asserted the basic humanity of black people and called for the Declaration of Independence's embrace of natural rights for all to be logically extended to those in slavery. He did so vividly. Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad. It corrupts your politicians at home. It saps the foundation of religion. It makes your name a hissing and a byword to a mocking earth. Oh, be warned, a horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you the hideous monster and let the weight of 20 millions crush and destroy it forever. Well, I think on Douglas's mind in 1852 is this idea of as this union is growing and America is growing, is it going to be a republic of slavery or a republic of freedom? And Douglas is more certain than even some of his staunchest white allies that it can't be a mixture of both. This is the author and professor of history at the University of Texas, Peniel Joseph. And he's actually been through an evolution among predominantly white abolitionists. Initially, he's very, very grateful for their aid. But over time, he comes to look upon these white liberals as not being as committed to the struggle for Black citizenship and dignity as they often proclaim. He really believes that the only path forward is a republic of freedom that abolishes slavery forever and ever. So when he gets up there in 1852, he's a man who's not exactly losing his religion of abolitionism, but he sort of gained a new version or denomination of that abolitionist religion. Then came the final section of the speech, one in which Douglas pointed the way forward through the sin and the strife of the middle section of indictment. For Douglas believed in the anti-slavery nature of the Constitution. Interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble. Consider its purposes. Is slavery among them? Let me ask if the Constitution were intended to be, by its framers and adopters, a slave-holding instrument, why neither slavery, slave-holding, nor slave can anywhere be found in it? He's firmly convinced that the keys to liberation reside within the foundational principles of the Republic. 
he converges with Lincoln in terms of looking upon American democracy and the founding documents as this sacred fountainhead that just needs to be further developed. He argued that America possessed the means of redemption, not through tearing down the institutions of the Republic, but through the conscientious deployment of the means of reform. Now take the Constitution according to its plain reading, and I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. Frederick Douglass's voice, articulating the feelings of innumerable others, ultimately prevailed. It did take presidential action to make things official. A Lincoln to free the slaves, a Woodrow Wilson to sign the women's suffrage amendment, a Lyndon Johnson to abolish Jim Crow. But without the voices from afar, there would have been no chorus of liberty. The reformers' work of resistance, long, hard, almost unimaginably difficult work, led to progress and a broader understanding of who was included in the phrase, we the people. God speed the hour, the glorious hour, when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power, nor in a tyrant's presence cower, but all to manhood's stature tower, by equal birth, that hour will come to each, to all, and from his prison house the thrall go forth. Until that year, day, hour arrive, with head and heart and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the gyve, the spoiler of his prey deprive, so witness heaven. And never from my chosen post, whatever the peril or the cost, be driven. Here ended the lesson. On the next episode of It Was Said, Season 2, Franklin D. Roosevelt asked Congress for a declaration of war against Japan following the attack on Pearl Harbor, a date, Roosevelt said, which will live in infamy. Thank you for listening to It Was Said Season 2, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, sales, operations, and business affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. 
Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart, but safe in dreams. You're running far beyond the dark. We'll always be one of the roads to Fall on your knees to find a love. Your light to me, my only son. You'll always shine for me. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.